distinguished audience, welcome to a very special episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. The show is officially two years old as of today. 2022 to 2023 was definitely a year for the books. The amount of listeners exploded, subscribers I think tripled, and I got to meet so many more amazing people along the way. I figured a great way to celebrate how far we've come is to compile some clips of the guests we've heard from over the last two years. But these weren't picked at random. They are the top 10 most downloaded and streamed episodes from the first two years. I will note that the competition was very tight between the top 10, with only a couple dozen streams separating number 1 from number 10. Also, this is not a list of my favorite episodes, but those which are the most popular within the general listenership across all platforms. I do apologize if some of this compilation has sharp cuts between clips, but I have never done this before. It's also just littered with teasers to draw in a new audience for each of these episodes. But without further ado, let's get this compilation rolling with the number one downloaded episode. Kindergarten Teacher with Natalie Parmenter. I'm not sure if it's because this is an education episode on an education podcast, or just general interest. But the primary focus host really killed it with this interview. When I was teaching, I found there was a huge gap between parents and teachers. And when I moved down to teach kindergarten, I found this gap to be especially wide. So I would even find the most prepared parents. I had to read all the books, listen to all the podcasts. They all asked me the same questions. Uh, And there were even a couple of times where I would be out at a bar, at a party, and the parents of the three and four-year-olds would find me and say, oh, you're a kindergarten teacher. What do you know? Tell us about school. So I I looked in some parenting groups on Facebook and on Reddit, and I realized that there's this huge land of misinformation with parents asking questions, getting answered by other parents with just their opinions. Um, And I was sitting there as a teacher realizing there's a completely different answer for what's going on here. Um, And the answer is either a lot simpler or, you know, just what different than what they were saying. So that's why I started Primary Focus originally to close this gap and let families know what's really going on in schools. What do you really need to be worried about? What can you do at home? And there's so much at home that you can do to support your child's education. Yeah, oh, there's, a, there's a lot of crying at first, um, both from kids and parents. Um, I feel like I used to give out as many hugs to parents on the first day, dropping them off as I did to the kids that were scared. <laughs> I applied for colleges, and between you and me, I was just kind of being uh, sarcastic. I didn't know what I wanted to major in, so I just picked education. Um, I didn't want to go in undecided, so I was like, "Well, I'm going to school, aren't I? I'll just pick education as my as my major, and I'll sort it out from there." And I gave him my nice resume on resume paper, and he, it was a sad moment. He wasn't trying to be rude, but he he said, "Don't waste your nice paper on me. We're laying off all, all the elementary school teachers." And I it was a really intense moment for me, but I realized I had spent four years going to school. And if I wanted to teach in California, I would need to wait several years um, before there are spots for me. 
So um, I applied to a program called Teach for America, which is a service-based AmeriCorps program um, that places people in hard to staff schools, schools um, with high poverty rates and schools that really need extra support and have a hard time keeping staff. Um, And they sent me to Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's where I still live today. And um, yeah, I I taught elementary school at my placement school and just kept going. Uh, I, I loved it so much. And I still I've changed my career now. But I've got a lot of joy in teaching and it uh, it never stopped being old. I, I loved seeing all the little kids every morning and, you know, watching them learn and the same joy that I felt um, swimming at that family reunion. Um, I still felt every morning in my classroom as they came in with their stories to tell me and and all the little things kids will say to you. There are a lot of battles to pick. I would never teach middle school or high school. I just couldn't. They're, they're mean and they smell and their problems are problems I don't, don't want to solve. Like, I don't know how to solve your drama or your dating problem or your hormone problems or any of that. That's not appealing to me. Um, I would like to read novels with you, but, but all the rest that comes with it is not, not for me because I can barely figure those things out myself. Um, that said, there's plenty of high school and middle school teachers that would tell you elementary is their worst nightmare and they would never do it. There's just a lot of things to worry about with your child at that age, and I don't blame them at all, and I had all the answers, Um, but for a lot of people, I think that's very intense because I had a lot more emails in my inbox than some of the other teachers, and I had to do a lot of, okay, well, this might be how you communicate with people at your job, but this is how you communicate with a teacher kind of lessons, which is very strange to talk to an adult about, (laughs) But for them, I can't imagine what a roller coaster that was living in three different states in three years. And each state had a different opinion on what a child should be able to know and understand and learn. So there's huge discrepancies between the states in terms of how they're, you know, from how teachers are paid down to what the kids are learning and everything in between. Um, Moving between states is it's like a foreign language and a lot to the point that a lot of states will ask you to take university coursework to get certified in their state that it's so different. So before you get to the point where you're student teaching, I would highly recommend picking a program that has you doing hours in a school where you get to observe, where you get to volunteer, where you get to, you know, even if it's 10 hours a semester, my program did that and I learned so much. By the time I got to my student teaching, I had an idea of what grades I wanted to teach. I knew what grades I didn't want to teach. I had a lot of teaching is something that you can learn how to teach math from a textbook, but you cannot learn classroom management from a textbook. And so those one-on-one hours where you're in a class or practicing are important. I see a lot of online teaching programs, and while I did get my master's degree online and I'm a huge proponent for it, there is something to be said about being in a classroom because kids are weird and they're different and they're going to keep you on their toes, Um, and nothing can prepare you for that moment um, except for hopefully have seen that moment beforehand. You know, that's actually more common than you'd think. It feels really funny because, I mean... 
public schools in particular, like it is a federal law like that you cannot have alcohol on a campus. So to think that you're going and working at a bar right after that is funny. Um, yeah, there's uh, let's see. I used to know a lot of male teachers are bouncers in their off time, you know, whether it's at the big arena where the big acts come or they're working at a bar as a bouncer. It's a pretty, pretty common one, too. And ultimately what was happening was a lot of the joy that I'm thinking about reminiscing on teaching and describing it to you right now. I'm I'm missing teaching, talking to you, um, was that there were a lot of things getting in the way of that joy. And a lot of the joy that I had in the classroom was starting to be suppressed. And it came from a lot of angles. Um, and I think one of the biggest ones is that the state that I live in, North Carolina, fundamentally is against funding education and try as they might try as some politicians might um, year after year budgets are not raised um, pay will be has been frozen at different points they got rid of master's pay and for me at some point I realized that this was a dead end in terms of my financial future and that I was making less and less every year with inflation and so I I talked with my husband and we decided to see what it would be like if I changed careers and, and made some changes. So here I am now. It's been a very interesting time because teaching is really an identity. I think the same way, I, I don't know, there are just certain jobs like doctor, lawyer, you say that and there is a meaning behind that. And I loved the meaning of what teacher meant. Um and I loved the pride that I felt saying teacher, but I wasn't feeling that in my day to day anymore. Um, and at some point I realized like something I had chosen out of passion had been taken away. So unfortunately, I, I had to pivot and and change. But, um, you know, I also feel really happy with it, too. I feel like I'm I've rediscovered a lot of things in my life. I realized that I used to be really, really stressed out all the time and. And now I feel a lot more peaceful, and I'm really grateful for that. Number two, Dieting Correctly with Amy Fox. It should come as no surprise that many of us want to succeed with diets, but my expert really came from a neutral position and blew me away with her simple tips. I launched, a, my, I call it my passion project, uh, the Food and Mood Lab, um, be, for various reasons. One, clearly um, my mom is a big reason of that, but also just over the years as I've been informally pursuing um, areas of nutrition and health and wellness, it just, it honestly frustrates me. There's so much information out on the internet. I, it's just, it's confusing. And it's no wonder why people um, just are are confused and it leads to some cycles of just frustration, guilt, shame. And so I'm really on a mission to kind of break the cycles and help people understand the simple ways to approach um, their health and wellness. Yeah, I think that, but the name of the game to answer your question is, are you going to stick with it? Because if you aren't going to stick with it, then you'll, whatever weight you lose short-term on the you fill in the blank diet, you'll probably, you know, rebound back and, um, and then take some time to figure out what's next. It's like this yo-yo back and forth type of um, situation. So, you know, it's really, it's, it's what can you stick to and does it have some of the healthier characteristics? Like, 
you know, get rid of junk food, you know, limit your alcohol intake, try to eat a combination, eat some veggies. I mean, some basic stuff. If anybody's doing that and you have a cheat meal, a piece of pizza, or you do, you do you uh, 10, 20% of the time, chances are over the long run, a year, two, five, you'll keep the weight off and you'll, you'll, it, you'll live a, a, a healthier life. And not what I mean by that is be able to keep up with your kids, feel good, live longer, maybe not get some of the chronic diseases that you hear about. When that situation happens and we quote unquote fail or just go off the rails because it was too restrictive, um, sometimes it, it creates feelings of guilt and shame. And then we cope with those feelings by probably overeating or just beating ourselves up. And sometimes it actually leads to depression and other times a feeling of being stuck for a lot longer than when you even tried the time frame that you tried that restrictive diet. So it's these cycles of, I feel good for a moment and then I can't stick with it. So I beat myself up and then I have these dips and sometimes the dips are pretty low. I see that a lot with women who just um, feel ashamed. There are direct impacts on your mental health um, based upon how you fuel your body. And um, I mean, it's just, a, it's it's been proven that if you eat a diet that's loaded with whole foods, meaning not crap or processed foods, fried foods, things in a bag, if you eat the better fats, that are that have omega threes, like they there's been studies that have shown that it doesn't only affect the gut, it passes through the gut and, and passes through the blood brain barrier and can help improve the signs of depression and anxiety. So there's tons. I mean, honestly, this is the this is one of the reasons that gets me all jazzed up because um, I'm not to say that people would abandon their uh, medicines, but uh, depending on their condition. But if you're the average person, you have the ability, you have these levers that you can push and pull that can help you to feel better mentally. Your, your mental health is a direct impact of sometimes how you move as well as what you put your in your body. Some people will tell you it doesn't matter what time of day you eat, but I'm of the perspective and the research that I've looked at there is something to be said about not like there's some science that shows that you'll sleep better because your body isn't busy digesting. I mean, that's using energy. And um, I was actually just talking about this yesterday with somebody just about the benefits of improving your sleep and stopping eating. I, I try to stop eating no later than eight. Um, and it, it kind of, this sort of topic sort of bleeds a little bit into in, intermittent fasting but I still think there's benefits if not even going too long, but just stopping eating in so many ways, just your body gets a break. And um, there's some really great things that happen when your body takes a break from digesting. When we're pairing foods together, you can, you can just feel that, that sense. Um, have you ever had like the perfect meal and you just felt good, not too full, not still hungry. And you just, you know, felt good. You felt energy, clear-minded. So there's actually some great combinations of foods that can like inspire or just help you to feel a little more relaxed. Oh, wow. So 
if you do a Google search of mocktails, you're going to blow your mind. It is, I, it is a hot topic. It has been, but it's been like, I'm finding now, especially just after the new years, um, there's some really, and, and, you know, dry January is a, have you ever heard, have you heard of dry January? I just this year heard of dry January. Yeah. So I don't know if it's new or if I just missed it. Yeah, it's, it's been a thing. I think it's growing. There's some momentum and it's, it's uh, growing in popularity. And in fact, I would tell you, I've done some pretty extensive research on the whole, mock, let me first answer your question. Mocktails are a, um, it's just sort of a hack on a cocktail. It's got, it's a, feels like it's a cocktail in a glass or it's, or it's in a, um, it looks like it, but it has zero alcohol. So it's, it's a mocking and and, and not in a funny way, but it's just a substitute for a alcohol um, based drink, except it has no alcohol or a zero proof alcohol, which is a, is a thing. Did you know that there's zero proof? I did not know there was zero proof. Is that like for a flavor effect? Yeah, but the market is booming. I mean, it's like literally it's projected to be it's on the same path, billions of dollars, but the same path as trajectory as a as the plant-based movement. And what's interesting is people who are filling their baskets with alternatives, because you can look at there's hop water, there's adaptogens which are like nutrients that are may help relax you there's all sorts of new drink options that might not even have anything to do with an alcohol substitute but are just a, a variation of alcohol based or water that um, taste good and have um, some nutrients that might make you feel a little relaxed so there's this whole market that's booming and there are also celebrities that are backing many of these brands like Katy Perry. Um, I just saw another celebrity recently introduce their brand. Oh yeah. Um, Blair, she's married to the really hot guy. She's um, <laughs> there's also the people that are people who you might know of. So you have this celebrity like stamp on it and <clears throat> there are tons of, wineries that are investing in ways to improve the flavor of wine by from de-alcoholizing it. So it's, it's on the rise. And, um, but what's filling people's um, grocery baskets, people who are, who are filling their ba baskets per, um, rather are people who are also might have beer in there, mm -hmm. beer or other alcohol related drinks. So it's really interesting to me that it just tells me that people you know, are curious and they're open to cutting back on alcohol, which is a good thing because there's absolutely no benefit to alcohol. I mean, there's really, there's, I mean, it's um, the World Health Organization just released last week a statement that said there's literally no amount of alcohol that has any benefit. There used to be, um, you know, out there that a, a glass of wine specifically because of the reservatrol that they thought that, you know, in moderating would be okay, but um, that it's making news. Um, and finally, and many of the research studies are coming out just talking about how bad it is. Number three, Working Dogs with Bob Bryant. This wasn't a cheery episode, but the information about how mistreated and mishandled these working dogs are is still really important. Ah, uh, 
I'm the king of nothing. Uh, that, that, and I'm also the co-founder of Mission Canine Rescue. We're a 501c3 nonprofit here in the United States. Our mission is we bring working dogs home from all over the world after their service. Uh, this includes military working dogs, contract working dogs, which are owned by private companies, uh, TSA, Customs and Border Protection, and various police departments here within the, within the United States. Here we are 10 years later, doing, doing real well. We do nearly $2 million a year worth of work, and we brought close to, at this point, I would say almost 1,300 dogs home, and we've reunited close to 650 with former handlers that they worked alongside of. There's a number of reasons why a handler might choose not to adopt his dog. And let's say the dog is a patrol dog, it's very aggressive, and there's young children in the house. It's just not a good fit. So uh, we do see a lot of that. But the main reason why military dogs weren't sent with their handlers in the past was due to the cost involved. If a dog is retired in, let's say, over on the island of Guam, uh, we brought several home from Guam. It's a $7,000 ticket for that dog home, and nobody's going to fly the dog for free. The military doesn't stick the dog on a plane. I don't know many corporals that have $7,000 sitting around to bring a dog home. So as a result, most dogs would sit in kennels, and while the military dogs get excellent veterinary care, they're still kenneled too long when they're retired and they can develop conditions related to PTSD and, and other things. So that was, the, that was the thing that kept them from bringing them home. With uh, contract working dogs, they often work alongside foreign nationals as their handlers, and then when the dogs are retired, they don't stay in country. They will, a lot of times, if a contractor runs out of money, the dogs are the first to suffer. They won't get adequate food, they'll be kenneled, they won't get exercise. We've received dogs that should weigh 70 pounds that came in at 35 pounds. I would say an average of three to five emails a week with departments wanting to surrender their dogs to us simply because they are now a liability because they're retired and they want them to be somebody else's problem. I really wish they would rethink their service given and provide them the same dignity in retirement that they do a fellow law enforcement officer. It's unfortunately it's because for years they've been considered assets rather than personnel. And there's a shift toward that, uh, toward the changing of that. I hope we see that soon. In fact, the best day of my life will be the day that Mission Canine is not needed anymore. When every dog gets to go home, when every dog has good vet care, when they have a loving adopter, if they don't have a handler, and they always they always get what they need. But unfortunately, I think that's going to be past my lifespan. The answer is a United States submarine. They are uh, drug detection dogs that will go and search for dope in the subs, and they can get places where the bigger dogs can't. Uh, the, the most common working dogs we see these days are 
Number one, the Belgian Malinois, we call them fur missiles. Uh, they're the velociraptor of the German Shepherd family. They're hard hitting, they're fast, they're borderline insane. And they will eat your house if you leave them alone and don't stimulate them. German Shepherd still comes in a close second. Um, all the breeds, there's Dutch Shepherds, German Shepherds, Jay and other ones, all sorts of crosses. Then we see Labrador Retrievers used a lot for explosives and drugs, not for patrol. I've only seen one bike train, one bike train lab, and he was a, an oddity for sure. We also see a lot of Springer Spaniels and German short-haired pointers used by TSA. I adopted him. And you're asking if they continue to work. That crazy dog has found me crack pipes. He's found me crystal meth. He's found loads of marijuana under bushes. He also has a, a passion for tennis balls. He's found over 400 in the three years I've had him just out. And he can find one with a ball in his mouth, sniff out the other one, he will drop it and take the new one, and he'll never touch the old one again. I make, I make regu regular visits to the tennis courts just to return all the balls that he's stolen that were knocked outside. Because there's no negotiating with a terrorist. You can't get it back from him. Came up to me and I told him, stop, don't come any closer, because I knew Navy would, you know, we might get him. And what does he do? He reaches out to shake my hand. He didn't have his hearing aid. Up comes Jaws. I just turned, bam, took it. And my friend looks at me and said, did that dog just try to bite me? I said, yes, sir, he did. Did that dog bite you? Unfortunately, yes, he did. Yeah. You made me think of something when you said that. And that's a service dog, a dog that is designed to do something for someone that's disabled. And we're not talking PTSD. We're talking, you know, act, okay, and here I go, I'm in trouble. I'm not going to say that PTSD isn't a disability. I'm saying that true service dogs provide some function for their owner, either seizure detection or help them lift this or move a door or get objects. It's not, they're not just sit down and let me be comfortable with you, emotional support animals. Uh, there's, I'm sure there's, there's a case for those. I see a lot of that being grossly abused on our airlines these days. I will say patently that no retired working dog can be certified as a service dog. Don't try it. We also don't waste donors' money. 92%, a little over 92% of every dollar given this last year went to the work. We're almost a little too nonprofit as there was not enough um, money at the end of the month or there was too much month at the end of the money back last November. And I had to do something rare, which is get on Facebook and beg for money. We don't, we don't like to do that. We like for people to give because they value our work and not because someone, uh, I won't ever use guilt, but I will ask strongly and I will say, you want these dogs to come home? You know, they're not going to be able to come home if you don't help us bring them home. But in the process of that, we spend the majority of their uh, donation to do just that. We don't fly first class. We don't sit in leather chairs. We don't have a 
huge central office that we gravitate around. These ladies that run this thing are driving vans, sleeping in roadside parks at night. Number four, dental hygiene with Tracy Petrie. I might be a little partial, but this will always be one of my most favorite guests. She's just such a wonderful and kind lady. Also, she's my mom. Plus, she gave so much insight on a highly desired job, which was an original intent behind this podcast. It's very competitive to get into the colleges because they're limited to how many students you can take each year. So it takes you two years of an actual in-hygiene program. And in that time frame, you have to have like your own dental unit. So it's not like you could have like 50 chairs available. Dental schools have that, but hygiene schools do not. So most of them take between 18 to, I think there's a few of the colleges now here in Oregon that take 24. But for the most part, that's how many. So you get two, 300 people applying to those 18 to 24 positions. It's very competitive. So most of them, like mine's an associate degree. Um, in Oregon, OIT and I think Pacific are the only two that have bachelor's programs. However, once you take your hygiene boards, it makes absolutely no difference in getting hired. Whether you have an associate degree, you have a bachelor's degree. It doesn't make a difference in pay. It doesn't make a difference in anything else. You pass the same boards. You're a registered dental hygienist. That's all any dentist cares about. First year, you get clinical classes, um, I think a couple of times a week, where you practice first on what we call like Dexter. We have like these heads that you strap to a chair that have a mouth on them. <laughs> she mentioned this is before the Dexter serial killer series. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> You're not just like strapping heads and being like, look, I'm Dexter. <laughs> No, they were created for dental stuff. They had fillings and whatnot in them. And, and so you use those to start with to like try and figure out how to look at a mirror, how to work backwards, which end of your instruments to use. And then we started working on like each other. And then I think by second term, we actually saw our first patients. But you still have a lot of lectures in there as far as like your radiology lecture classes. Um, some of those, I, like I got to skip on that one because I already had a radiology license. Um, so I took the lectures, not the labs. Um, dental materials, same thing. I took the lectures. I didn't have to take the labs because I'd already been through assisting. I knew how to like mix up stuff for models and take impressions and stuff like that. So things like that was kind of nice to have that assisting background ahead of time. It made definitely getting through a little easier in program. I didn't have as many classes and as many hours as I had to take that some of the others did. Yeah, and I don't think they were free. I think it was like $15 or something. I mean, it was something that was really cheap. Like they charged you a, a small fee for like if we took x-rays. So there was a small fee for the x-rays. There was a small fee to do your cleanings, that type of a thing. But, you know, if you don't have insurance or something that way, definitely way cheaper. And it's a great way for you to get something done inexpensive and a great way for students to get hands-on experience. But you mean it's drugs patients, patients are, are taking. So there's ones that have different effects. You can get um, some anti-seizure medications that make 
their gums more swollen. Um, there's medications that patients take that give them a very dry mouth, which can lead to increase in cavities. So there's a lot of different medications that have different effects on the oral cavity itself. The nice thing about hygiene is that because your wage is a really a decent wage, you know, for people that are having kids, you're home, you want to spend time with the kids, you can work a couple of days a week and still make a really good paycheck and still have that time with your kids. But an average full-time hygienist would be four days a week. Okay, so is this like the, uh, the miniaturized version of a pressure washer? Um, it's like the miniaturized version of a jackhammer. Oh. So the tip of it vibrates like 30,000 times a second. It's a very fast vibration. And it for people who have a lot of tartar built up, it removes that really quickly. You can just kind of line it up on there and it jackhammers through it. It has the water spray going with it so that it keeps the tip cool because it moves so rapidly but they're finding out more and more it also um, kind of kills the bacteria it makes the cells explode so plaque is kind of the biofilm or that white fuzzy stuff that you can scrape off with your fingernail mm -hmm. that's the plaque that's what you remove with your toothbrush on a daily basis the tartar is a calcified deposit that builds up on your teeth and that's what we remove in the dental offices. Your toothbrush won't do it for you at home. And it's not like we all build that at the same rate either. No, everybody's different. And a lot of it depends on genetics plays a role into it. I mean, obviously, if you don't brush your teeth, you're going to build more than if you do. So your brushing definitely, your home care definitely plays a part in that. But it has a lot to do with different phosphates, minerals, things that are in your saliva content, which is why when most people go in to have their teeth cleaned, like your lower front teeth is always everybody's worst spot because that's where your main saliva glands come into your mouth. So those areas are the ones that get coated with all those minerals and phosphates and things first. So yes, everybody builds tartar at a different rate. Some people very rapidly, other people very slowly. Okay. And then I know from toothpaste commercials, they throw the word enamel at you a lot. <laughs> they do. So it's a layer of the tooth. That's the outside layers of the tooth. Yes. Okay. So it's enamel. And then what's just beneath that? Dentin. Dentin. Mm -hmm. Aptly named. For the dental so for cavities once it's gotten through the enamel to the dentin that's when it actually becomes a cavity and you have to fill it if it's still in the enamel surface you can halt it or stop it like if it's in between the teeth flossing can you know if you can keep those areas clean or a water pick a water pick actually is one of my favorite tools if you hate flossing buy a water pick i know i'm gonna hear about this as soon as we get off air <laughs> how's your flossing habits bad <laughs> Use a water pick. I know. I have it one. will <laughs> replace your flossing. And if anybody has kids with braces, water pick. It just gets right around all. Oh those. my goodness, yes! It'll get around those brackets and underneath those wires so much easier than anything else. They are a bit on the messy side to you kind of figure out use a little bit, but you know, you clean your mirror, your sink, yourself, your teeth, <laughs> all at the same time with one. Also, I didn't have wisdom teeth. You did not have wisdom teeth, and that's weird. It is. We see it every so often, but it is kind of an on the unusual side, yes. Do people always get four? No. Some people will have one, um, two. Sometimes it's a lower. Sometimes they're uppers. Sometimes they're right side. Sometimes it's left. Um, sometimes they'll be missing one of them. 
We see that quite a bit. I've had a few, and this is kind of like people missing wisdom teeth. There's a few of those rare ones who actually will have like six of them. Oh, they get odd. the extra ones. And typically the extras that I've seen are usually uppers. So is it worse to have a lot of sugar or to be that hard, whatever it is in the brown soda? It's worse for exposures. So let's go with, let's start there. So exposures are kind of the worst thing. So if you sat down, say, with a liter of Mountain Dew and you had lunch and you downed it in 15 minutes, that's one exposure of sugar and acids on your teeth. If you take that liter of soda and it's sitting on your desk and you take a drink of it and you get back to work, that's an exposure. 10 minutes later, you come back and get another swallow. Every time you drink that and it takes you all day long to drink that same amount of pop is way worse on your teeth than if you drank it in one sitting and had one exposure. Your tooth health, dental health, affects a lot of the rest of your body as well. Like it's it does, and they're actually linking more and more and more to your overall general health to your mouth. So people who have like periodontal disease, some of the bacteria and stuff that's in your mouth from the periodontal disease can actually contribute towards heart issues. It can uncontrolled A1Cs for diabetics, pregnancies, um, low-term birth weights. Um, and infants. So there's a lot, a lot of things and, and more and more so that they're coming out with. Everything, I mean, if you think your whole body is really one big system, of course your mouth is going to have an effect on that. Number five, psychedelic medicines with Jonathan DePotter. I was worried that the audience who shows up for very professional topics might not receive the topic of drugs particularly well. But its place in this top 10 shows that there's a broad interest to learn and grow amongst the audience, despite the perception of any given topic. Yes, yeah, so there's a number of psychedelic plant medicines out there. Uh, we predominantly work with uh, three different medicines, which, strictly speaking, you could say is number one, a fungus, psilocybin, or the magic mushroom. Number two, ayahuasca, which is the combination of two plants. Uh, very well-known and very potent, powerful uh, psychedelic medicine. And then third and finally, 5-MeO-DMT, also known as Bufo or the God Molecule, uh, which confusingly comes from a plant, uh, an animal, and also is available in synthetic form. Uh, So it's, uh, you know, people use the term plant medicine as a bit of an umbrella, even as and when it doesn't necessarily strictly apply. Uh, it can help us, you know, clear out past childhood traumas, limiting beliefs. Uh, it can also really help with, you know, deeper self-understanding um, and personal growth. Uh, and then it can also facilitate, you know, pretty incredible experiences that are spiritual in nature, you know, universal love and interconnectivity of all things, all of these, you know, transcendent types of experiences uh, that have been written about in virtually every uh, religious and um, in spiritual tradition around the world. 
We don't do microdosing. Um, it's uh, it's increasingly common, uh, as you say. And you know, with microdosing, I think it's uh, it can be a softer introduction into you know developing our neuroplasticity, and you know, can make things like meditation, which can be hard for people, a little bit easier. Um, on our retreats, we actually do higher dose retreats, uh, higher doses, so a um, bit more powerful uh, of an experience. And often people are looking for some support and some guidance around that to really get the most out of the experience and also to hold the space so that, you know, you feel um, you feel safe and spiritually protected as well, because, you know, with these work, with this work, uh, powerful, uh, powerful energies can come to the surface. And so, you know, the role of a facilitator, the role of a healer, is really to make sure that people are being well looked after uh, through what can be, you know, a reasonably intense experience. Uh, and that's just really common. And unfortunately, you know, this is a nascent and still unregulated ecosystem. So for those people who seek to do this work in legal locations, that requires a flight to, say, Costa Rica or to Peru or to Mexico in order to do it in an environment where, you know, there's no there's no prohibition uh, against the work as as there is in the U.S. So um, I think it's great that you know more and more people are uh, building momentum into uh, exploring exploring the self, whether that's through psychedelics or or otherwise. But it comes for us as a business. It kind of comes with a little bit of a um, asterisk next to it in the sense that we really have to put a lot of time and energy to make sure that people are truly ready. Well said, you know, people often use the word ineffable, impossible to describe, and no words can ever do justice to the power and the beauty of some of these experiences, but also, you know, the the lows, you know, so as, as high as we want to go, and uh, as far as I can tell, it's infinite in terms of how high we can go into, you know, the, the source of creation or uh, whatever language we might like to use, as high as we might like to go. Equally, we have to go down to the other polarity and kind of dredge up and dredge out uh, whatever whatever things are down there uh, holding us back from reaching a you know a, a lighter version of, of ourselves, shall we say? Generally speaking, people do uh, feel called towards a uh, psilocybin or ayahuasca retreat in the first instance uh, as they're getting started. And, you know, there's not that many people, you know, are are meditating. You know, I don't I would love to see some statistics, but, you know, most people still really struggle because this thing is just super active. You know, the mind is going, going, going. And uh, so they struggle to meditate. And with some help from you know psilocybin or ayahuasca, we can turn off what is known as the default mode network of our brain, or at least dampen down the default mode network of our brain uh, for the first time, which really allows this exchange of information between regions of the brain that don't normally exchange information. And so that's, you know, part of what uh, allows so many of the benefits to come through. Um, but that also shows people it can really facilitate and help people in their own meditation practice because now they've had this experience of this default mode network being dampened down and they go home and uh, can really begin to to work on their meditation practice. We, we can see now with the science, the breadth of applications that are coming through. So, you know, healing past trauma, uh, grief, um, anxiety, depression, uh, eating disorders, uh, smoking cessation, weight loss, 
Um, you know, there's a research piece that has just been released that shows a correlation between um, people who have done psychedelics and physical activity. Um, so the list becomes quite long. And then, you know, the a healthy skeptic would go, well, hey, what's going on here? Is the psychedelics cure everything? Um, and, and the answer is yes and no. Um, in my experience, and again, this is my subjective truth, um, it's all consciousness. It's all one thing. And so once we see that for ourselves and we release those things that are not us, then then we can get um, this this broader and deeper understanding of who and what we really are and, you know, develop the knowledge of our own mind, body, heart and spirit to further advance ourselves and to, to just really let go of anything that's uh, not us. And so um, to come back to your to your question, you know, certainly a lot of people who are um, seeking to heal past trauma, uh, certainly a lot of people who are feeling stuck or just not themselves anymore. You know, we, we do attract a, a large proportion of professionals who I would say have reached a point in their life where what has been working for usually a decade or two is no longer working. Right. So either their relationship is falling apart and um, they don't know uh why you know they don't really understand the role that they've played in that or um you know they they no longer feel excited about doing the work that they do they're feeling a little bit apathetic they're feeling stuck in life um they're in the middle of a transition you know perhaps leaving their uh leaving their job and moving into um a, a sort of more retirement or semi-retirement they're looking to reconnect with their joy for life or they're looking for you know a spiritual experience and so um, the, the, the variety of motivations are many. Um, and then also we have, I would say, you know, probably I would say 20% of our guests are on, um, some SSRIs, some, some, you know, medications from a pharmaceutical perspective, and they don't want to be on those anymore. So we can guide them through the process of, uh, coming off of those medications and coming onto a retreat to really begin to heal the mind. Um, and, uh, you know, we have pretty good success rate in terms of those people staying off the meds. So that's a, that's another, uh, big motivator for a lot of people. Number six, modern caveman brains with Dr. Betsy Holmberg. Psychology will never not be fascinating to me, and the thought that an outdated brain process might lead to our early deaths earned its spot on this community list. Three years later, I was still struggling, and I felt that that antidepressant was the thing that was holding me together and keeping me functioning, and not myself. And so... In a fit of desperation, I went back to my roots and I went back to the academic literature to see what was going on with me. How can I get over this feeling of being damaged for good, you know? And um, it was then that I discovered why we think and where these thoughts really come from. And it completely changed my life. And I started titrating off my antidepressant. And uh, I have never looked back. And that was such a huge healing. And it was such a shift for me that now I am out here wanting to share it all with you guys because it really changed my life. So our thoughts all come from two networks in the brain. The first network is called the central executive network. And this is where you have the thoughts that you choose to have. So this is really where you run the show. So if you're trying to solve a problem, 
you're using your central executive. If you identify a goal and then go after it, that's you using your central executive. Then we have another thought network called, the scientists call it the default mode network. I call this the tribal brain. So these were our first thoughts. This is when humans started thinking and it traces all the way back to when we were cavemen. And it helped us evolutionarily form and live in clans. So it served a really important purpose. You know, it helped us see that we wanted to be together. It helped us help each other out. And it helped us see that we all kind of survive and thrive if we work together in a clan capacity. You know, I always think everyone is cooler than I am. I just walk around like everyone has more friends. I, everyone is hanging out together and I'm not invited and I'm not cool and I don't know how to keep friends. I mean, it's just where my tribal brain goes. And this was such a huge thing to release it because then also you release it in the moment when you're talking with someone. I mean, I used to spend all my time thinking, are they judging me? Did I say the right thing? Are they thinking that's stupid? Are they, do they wish they were talking with someone else, you know, and not me? Are they looking for a better person to talk to in the room? So my tribal brain would go when I was talking with someone and to think, no, this is automatic. It's, it, it's, let it go. I could actually focus on that person. And we always have, I like now I have way better conversations because I'm not in my head paranoid about what the other person's tribal brain is thinking, essentially, you know? So like a way to use empathy is instead of saying yes to every single thing that everyone's asking you to do or to shift yourself to be exactly what you think they want. It's when your friend's really struggling and you're having a conversation with them, it's to feel that emotion of that empathy and then to, interestingly enough, kick into your central executive by really focusing on them and turning off your inner monologue and just being present with them. And that is the greatest gift you can give them. So yeah, we can use it to help us, but it's really if we're we can get the most bang out of it if we go into our central executive and be really present. You know, this is where I feel like we've completely gotten it wrong. Like we, another thing I used to think a lot when I was younger is that there's no time for hobbies. Hobbies, you know, are a wasteful way to spend time. When, you know, you need to be working, you need to be advancing yourself or being there for someone. And oops, I got that totally wrong because hobbies are a place where we naturally focus easily and so what hobbies do is strengthen your central executive network because you get focused, you get immersed in it. And the more you strengthen your central executive ne network, the better you can focus at work, the better you can focus on your family and friends. Like it literally helps every single part of your life. It, it protects you from developing depression or anxiety, which are both disorders of the tribal brain. Like it is so Essentially, it's one of the best places to be spending your time and the most helpful for your overarching everything. And I didn't get that earlier, you know? And therefore, my mind went to the place, my tribal brain went to the place of, okay, you probably should just like kind of go out to the forest and, you know, do away with yourself. Why have we been listening to something that will functionally kill us off? You know, it's more like a cancer, you know, it's more, it, it, it doesn't, it's not smart enough to not kill itself in the process. It's that far back in our evolution. And all a suicidal thought is, is that idea of 
I feel like I'm outgrouped from my world and therefore I don't belong anymore. Yeah. And that actually, it like, it clicks in with, you know, I have some, some friends that work in the emergency medical field and that makes a lot of sense because they have a lot of these moments where we're talking and they're like, you know, I, I just feel so bad at work. I don't feel like I'm doing what I should be. And I think that's because they're told like, you're here to save lives. And then they are not always doing that. Like there's a lot of the time in the day where they are just doing kind of like helping people behavior. And because they're not told like, oh, your job is to help people. They're told your job is to save lives. Like when they're not doing that, I think they are kind of telling themselves like I'm failing at my job, even though I haven't done anything wrong. That is such a great example. And that's that tribal brain just getting it a little off. Like, oh, you're not saving a life. Oh, you failed. I mean, it's so either or and it's so black and white and, you know, dumb in its way, you know, and it's a travesty to me that we've all been listening to this thing for as long as we have and believing that it's our true thoughts and rather than being able to see it and be like, you know what, forget it. Says so my tribal brain, let it go. Ha ha. You know, look how dumb we used to be. You know, I mean, I don't know, whatever it takes. You know, that's the thing that also blew my mind as I started doing this is I was shocked how much of my life I wasn't present. Like I wasn't aware of what I ate. I wasn't aware of what my kid was saying. I really wasn't even aware of like what other people were saying. I mean, I, and I was, I was focused so much on what my tribal brain was saying that I wasn't actually there for my life. And so shutting this thing off suddenly like, yeah, you taste your food again. You know, you actually hear what your friend is saying instead of thinking of the five things you have to do. It It's interesting that it brings presence into our lives in a way that I didn't expect. Yeah, in a way, it kind of gives you your life back because you're living your life, but you're not actually experiencing it. You're just, you're kind of surviving instead of living. Yes, and it makes sense because the tribal brain spends all of its time thinking about the past to try to learn lessons to protect you, spending all of its time thinking about the future to try to figure out how you're going to act so that you do okay so you don't die. And But life is happening in the present. So this is where all these wellness experts are all like, you know, the present moment is the way to peace and everything in life. And it's like, Yes, but now I know why. I know it, you know, it's it is that because it's getting you out of your tribal brain, which is spending all its time in the past and the future. It feels like a coping mechanism now that I'm thinking about it, where you're like, you're trying to override that with like an outside stimulus. Colton, you're hitting on something so huge. And it I found this part of the research absolutely riveting. So like nicotine is a perfect example. It actually activates your central executive network and it shuts down your tribal brain. So that's why people love taking smoke breaks at work because if your tribal brain starts going, they go down and have a smoke. Suddenly they have a substance that turns, turns off those thoughts and then helps them focus. 
Like no wonder it's one of the most addictive substances in the world. Alcohol, same thing. It shuts, it, it impairs the, the functional connectivity of the tribal brain. So this is why we all drink because then it shuts off those thoughts and suddenly we can enjoy being around people again. You know, we're not constantly worried about fitting in. And if the, you know, the clan's going to kick us out, we're like, this is awesome. But then if you keep drinking and as you drink over time, it actually impairs your central executive and it increases the functional connectivity. It strengthens your tribal brain. And so you get stuck thinking those thoughts more. Then you need the drink more to turn them off. Number seven, the JFK assassination with K.W. Zachary and Sarah Peterson. While usually I shoot for the highest audio quality, I love that this true crime slash conspiracy episode has that very on-brand audio like I was taking a call from a safe house. And one of the things that people ask us so often is how our book is different from the uh, literally thousands of other books about the assassination. And we always say that, first of all, we did not have an agenda when we began writing this. Right, Sarah? We did not have an agenda. A lot of people, when they write their books, they want to prove a thesis. We did not. We wanted to start with an open mind and where the evidence led us. That is what we wrote in our book. Our book's a little different because we used primary sources. We found individuals, mostly, who had never spoken to someone before. And their stories are in our book. And then we did research to back up with evidence what they had told us. And some of the witnesses who we call our voices, uh, they verified each other without knowing about the other person. So it's interesting when people will look at our table of contents uh, at book signings and say, well, I've never heard of this person and I've never heard of that person. And we'll say we never did either until we happened to find them or he or she found us. But believe me, they have a fascinating story to tell. So it's not going to be a rehash of the same old documentaries you see all the time. Yes, absolutely. So let's let's get like the most basic picture of what happened or what the the primary story is for everyone out there who is maybe just kind of familiar with the JFK assassination. Well, basically the story is President Kennedy was shot in Dealey Plaza in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. They decided that the person that shot him was Lee Harvey Oswald, and they decided that he was on the sixth floor of the school book depository. That is what the Warren Commission, that was their official statement on it after nine months of investigating. And that is basically it in a nutshell that they tried to sell to the American public. And they did sell it. It's called the Warren Report and millions of people bought it. We now know that there was a lot more to the story than just that. Right. They had an idea, and they knew that they had to prove that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone nutter 
and that he was the only one who shot Kennedy and that it wasn't a conspiracy. It wasn't anything international. And that is what they had to prove from day one. And that's what came out of their report. But researchers started looking into this when the assassination actually happened. And there were so many questions that either the ones that knew things were wrong had to sign a confidentiality agreement with the military or with intelligence or they worked for the mafia or CIA and so they could not come forward. Well, after 50 years, when the confidentiality agreements went away for military intelligence or medical people, they started coming forward and letting people know. And our first witness that we met was Assistant Attorney General of Texas, Robert T. Davis. And when we met with him, he told us that uh, Wagner Carr had asked him to sit in on some of the Warren Commission investigations in Dallas. And he knew from the beginning that Johnson was running it, that Johnson was in control, that, and he came back to Wagner Carr and he said it was the biggest whitewash he'd ever seen and that members sitting in on these commission investigations were very lackadaisical. They'd walk out of the room or, you know, they wouldn't even be there and they weren't listening. So he knew from the beginning that the Warren Commission was whitewash and a joke. And then we met witnesses who did talk to the Warren Commission and their testimony is there, but the Warren Commission changed their testimony. When you see it written down in black and white, that is not what they told them at all. Well, Chief Jesse Curry of the Dallas Police Department made a very interesting statement, and he published it. He put it in his book called The Assassination Files. He said, we never could have proven that Lee Harvey Oswald was on the sixth floor with a rifle shooting at the president at the time the motorcade went by. And that was after the assassination when they supposedly gathered every bit of information they could. And it was also at a time when he could have bragged and said, oh, yes, you know, it's a shame we didn't get up there sooner. We could have prevented this, but there's no doubt Oswald did it. He did not say that. He said if basically if they had gone to trial, they would not have been able to convict Lee Harvey Oswald which could explain why Jack Ruby took matters into his own hands. It was interesting. You know, you hear that only one rifle was found that day. The people that found the original, the rifle, and in their testimonies and their affidavits, they said it was a German Mauser. These are gun and rifle specialists. They said it was a Mauser. Not until that gun was being walked over to the sheriff's department and the, did it become a Carcano. And that is because 
they believe a Lee Harvey Oswald or Hadell ordered a Carcano. So now at 12 a.m., it is magically a Carcano that is being held up. But there was a British Enfield found on the roof of the School Book Depository. Buell Fraser also had an Enfield. There was a Carcano found by ATF Ensworth, and it was on the fourth floor in the stairwell. There was supposedly what we go by, what you first see, those officers found a Mauser on the sixth floor. There was a semi-automatic Johnson rifle found behind the gondolas on the grassy knoll. But you don't hear any of these rifles being put into evidence except for the Carcano, and that's because they believe they could attach that to Lee Harvey Oswald. So he said, I got to thinking, I knew which Jack Ruby had gotten onto my plane. And I said, well, what's so special about that? And he said, because you had to have either FBI or CIA approval to have your name on that list. Nobody else could fly on that plane. And he said, that's why I saved this manifest and took a picture of it to prove this guy was more than just a cheap nightclub owner. Number eight, Blindness with Kevin Lowe. With such a warm personality and a great show of his own, this whole interview was either educational, surprising, emotional, or all of the above. But more than any of that, I like to just say I'm pretty much just your ordinary 30-something, still trying to find my place in the world while hoping to make a difference along the way. And then, of course, all of that is highlighted by what makes me a little bit unique, and that is the fact that I'm completely blind. Was it, like, sudden or unexpected, or was this something that, like, just kind of happened over time, and you're like, okay, I guess this is going to be my new normal? Yeah, no, it was completely unexpected. Um, I was in my junior year of high school, um, literally just kind of living my best life. Like, things were going amazing. Had my own uh, Ford F-150 pickup truck. Grew up riding dirt bikes and four-wheelers and and had a had a four-wheeler I, I had actually just got a um a, a brand new four-wheeler for my 17th birthday um and things were going great had that awesome group of friends in school and um as i always like to say and then all of a sudden it wasn't going so good so that would fast forward me to an appointment with a doctor i had never heard of before it was called a, a endocrinologist and that endocrinologist sent me for an MRI. My mom would get a call from him on a Friday evening um, with the results of that MRI. And that was that I had a brain tumor. It was located basically in the center of my brain. So it had completely encased my pituitary gland. It was pressing against my carotid artery and was in the crosshairs of my optic nerve. The tumor was large. Um, They compared it to the size of a plum. And the one benefit was that the type of tumor that it was, it was was non-cancerous. 
but um, we would find out that it needed to be removed immediately because they literally gave me at most six months to live if this tumor was not removed. And so as dramatic as all of that sounds in which it was, it, it was assured that everything was going to be okay. I literally was going to the leading pedi pediatric neurosurgeon in the country, literally just an hour away from our home over in Orlando, Florida, um, is where his office was. And he, he assured us, he's like, I do these all the time. He's like, it's fine. He told me, he's like, Kevin, you'll be out of school for like three to four weeks, which for myself, somebody who wasn't a fan of school, I was like, woohoo, baby. And so I literally remember like going back to school, telling all my friends, like, see you later, suckers. I'm out of here for a month. Enjoy, uh, you know, trigonometry. And, um, and so I was having fun with it. You know, like I said, we were all geared up because we finally found the answer to what had been these, these issues, why I had all these headaches, what was going on. And so it was just kind of, uh, you know, as I like to say, a little just speed bump, a little bump in the road. And so I would go into surgery on the morning of October 28th, 2003. And um, never did I know, never did anyone know that that literally would mark the end to my life as I knew it. What's crazy is, is the doctors, when they look at, they can't explain why I lost either one. My doctor, when I would go for all the follow-up MRI appointments, because we had to be sure that the there was this little tiny piece of the tumor that they had to leave. And so I kept having follow-up MRIs to be sure that that was, was not growing back, which it didn't. It continued to die off. And in all the MRIs, you know, the doctor said that there's literally nothing wrong. And he could never explain it. But with that different life was a whole life of everything that I ever loved. Everything I ever dreamed about was taken from me in an instant. That truck that I loved to drive, the dirt bikes and four-wheelers that I grew up riding, all of that was gone. We literally, you know, had to sell off my truck, sold off my four-wheeler. Everything was taken from me. And I had some really hard times. Now, to the outside world, Kevin was great. Kevin handled it perfect. He's laughing. He's, he's loving life. You know, he, he's doing great. The only people who really saw the dark sides were the people closest to me. My mom, my dad, my sister, and my grandmother. And they were the ones who got to see what Kevin was going through behind closed doors and and that was a life that i absolutely hated and that i to this day I, I mean even though i've learned to overcome it and and can see the beauty in it it's something that i would never wish on my worst enemy to have happen and so i would you know kind of continue on um until really you know it, it took a long time because even though I was progressing forward and doing all the things, I was still, I think, in the back of my mind, buying time until I would see again. Because I was under the, the assumption, under the, the hope, was that this was temporary. And at the end of the audiobook, there was a character in the book who he said something, and... 
he was standing in the middle of a, a river that they had just finished doing this whitewater rafting journey. And he he stood in the middle of the river with his, his hands outstretched, his fingers splayed, letting the current run through his fingers. And, and talking to the river, he said, you know, I'll be back someday. But for now, I've got more life to live. And I heard that and I stopped it and I rewound it. And I listened to it and I did that a few times. And I thought, that's exactly what I need to do is I'm not going to give up on the hope, the faith that I may see again, but it may not be until I'm in heaven and that's okay because for right now I've got more life to live. And that was a pivotal moment for me to move forward with life. Because all of a sudden, this room of nothing turned into something. The wall that I was facing, all of a sudden, I could see it. Number nine, near-death experiences with Chris Jankolovsky. For a man who has always been on the verge of death, Chris doesn't let it slow him down. And his willingness to push forward carries a lot of lessons. It was honestly hard to cut this one down for the compilation because it's just all so compelling. I'm an, I'm an Australian guy that's living between Sydney and LA. Uh, I mean, I'm a new author. I'm a businessman. And, uh, and I'm also a survivor of multiple near-death battles, uh, eight in total over 50 years. Can you believe it? Eight. And of which four have been utterly, utterly brutal. So the first one was a seven when an appendix burst in my in, in my belly, obviously, and uh, I found myself in hospital for uh, two weeks, and uh, they almost lost me there. Well, yeah, yeah I, at twenty one, I, I almost drowned. Like I, you know, I was caught in a rip, and uh, I'm in a whitewash. I put my head up, I'm a big wave put me under. I'm spinning. I put up big wave. I did that like I don't know how many times, but I. I was in this wash. I couldn't get out. I didn't know where up and down was. I was completely disorientated. And then that was it. I couldn't hold my breath anymore. And I went underwater. And then all of a sudden, I, w- I was age 21. All of a sudden, I, was, I went into this super relaxed state. And I, I saw my life flash before me from 21, all these important moments in my life, people, all the way down to a toddler. And then I found myself, my head popped out of the water somehow, and I was just swimming and I didn't know my disorientation had me finally swimming out of the rip and I found myself eventually in shore. And then me and my mates were on holiday at that time. And I, and that evening I was, I was having a laugh with my friends over a beer about, hey, man, I almost nearly drowned. I mean, that's what happens when you're younger. But until uh, the first serious non-self-inflicted one came about, uh, and that was at the age of 32 when a brain tumor almost burst in my head and uh, it was five centimeters big. I had to contour my body to go to the toilet and the doctors were like, Chris, we found the reason for this, um, this, this headaches that you've been having for the last two weeks. Today's Tuesday. We're going to have you operate on Thursday next week because we can't find a doctor that can operate on you any sooner. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> wait a second. I'm having a brain operation. I mean, someone's going to enter my personal space, my head. Are you for real? Who the hell has brain operations? What? I'm having a brain operation. Yeah, I was freaking out. And then a kidney cancer battle to remove the right kidney, the fifth. Then another kidney cancer battle to remove four tumors, 
sticks that didn't spread. It killed kidney cancers is what killed my father. So I, I took on these battles and I survived them. Yeah, and then a second brain operation with a tumor burst, uh, leaving me with eight months learning how to walk and talk again. And then another six cancers in my remaining left kidney, now half kidney. So multiple battles, mate. No, uh, the brain operation or the second one with the tumor bursting, that was the real extreme one. Um, I mean, there were others were extreme, but that one was brutal because 60% of people die on the operating table when that happens. And I'm one of the lucky 40% that survived it. But I was in a five-day in a coma after that operation. And um, I mean, I was having a conversation with somebody on my left who I don't know. My father passed away four months earlier and he was on my right. And I was there having a conversation about returning back to my body. Uh, that was brutal. But all these battles, I don't have anxiety anymore about these battles because these battles are outside of my control. I have a hereditary condition that forms cysts and tumors in all my major organs. It's just how it is. So I've came to terms with my mortality and, I, and I'm okay with the fact that, okay, I'm living this life and I'm, my life is ahead of me, always full of battles that I have to come back from. What other choice have I? Well, am I going to live my life as a victim all my life of my hereditary condition? Am I going to live a life as a victim of all my circumstances that occur in my life? So I was running a real estate portal. I spent millions of dollars. I had 14,000 brokers listing with me. I had the most amount of listings in the Philippines on this business while I run another business as well, employing thousands of people. And I, I had to confront this brain operation. So that business, I had to kill it because I didn't have time to sell it. I didn't have time to do anything. I had to confront my mortality. Mortality is a fascinating thing because it eliminates all the not important and brings you to the core of what's really most true, truly important. And so I, I believe that we should all embrace our mortality, not be afraid of it. Embrace it because it brings you to one of a few places. One, if you embrace your mortality, it brings forward all your decisions. I'm not going to procrastinate anymore. I don't procrastinate anymore because I don't have time. I'm always uncertain about whether I'm going to even be alive next year. So who the hell has time to procrastinate if you're going to be dead next year? So death helps us bring our decisions forward. It also helps us. It, well, it certainly helped me realize that I don't have time to be down and out. I don't have time to be insecure or doubtful or anxiety with shit. I mean, it's just, I recognize that it's, in my case, it was self-perpetuating pat brain patterns running. And I was like, I'm not, I don't have time to entertain this anymore. I've only got one more year to live. Uh, before that moment, I was a victim of my hereditary condition. I was running away from life's problems. I was running away from this diagnosis. At 19, I was told I'll be dead by 30. And I, I, I did what any other 19-year-old would do who doesn't have answers and doesn't know what to do. I simply said to myself, if I really, really pretend that I never, ever received this diagnosis, that it might disappear and it might go away. That wasn't a good strategy. Uh, that almost killed me. But that's what I did because I didn't know how to take that life problem on. And that not taking a lot, one of life challenges on, if you're running away from one of your life problems, 
you're running away from a lot of other life problems you might not recognize it because when you run away from one of life's problems you are in, you are disempowering yourself life is here to grow us to teach us to help us become the best incredible versions of ourselves and that doesn't happen when we are victim all the time of circumstances that doesn't happen when we are not embracing our true core power so for me when when I had my first brain tumor diagnosis and I was told at a clinic that look you're going to be operated on like next Thursday that was the you know that was so I got diagnosed at 19 I ignored it till that brain tumor happened that was before that they told me you know you got to get yearly scans you got to I did none of it. And so this, when I, when the tumor finally came, it was actually a relief because you know what, this is really happening to me. I don't have to doubt this anymore. I don't have to question that. I really have this hereditary condition. And you know, I looked at the sky and I said, God, kill me if you want. I've had enough. I've had enough of living that way. I've had enough of living this disempowered life. I, I don't know whether I'm going to be in a wheelchair and I really don't. I don't know if I can move again, talk again. I don't know how long I'm going to live after this. I don't care. I'm going to choose life. I'm going to choose to make the most of life. I'm not living like that anymore. I know that. So I know that I don't want want to live like that anymore. So I'd rather just choose life, focus on being this self-empowered individual. I'm no longer going to limit myself like this. Tired of that. That's your purpose. But you won't, you won't know it's your purpose at the beginning because you've got to do it over time. And then I've always discovered my purpose when I look back. And I go, oh, you see, when I decided to be an entrepreneur at 25, I thought that's my purpose. No, that's just, just my job. That's just my career. But my purpose was when I look back and I realize, wow, I've been employing and, and recruiting and hiring people for so long. that I realized this is my purpose. My purpose is to hire and employ people, which is what I've been doing and to find the right fit for the employer, not just hiring a Filipino staff that's cheap. I specialize in finding Filipino staff that are really awesome team members for your business, that are a real good fit to your behavioral tendencies that you would love to have on your team regardless of how they are. But that's not the only purpose. Just because you have one purpose, that doesn't mean that's the only purpose. That's, that is my purpose, and it really is my life purpose. But I've also bargained for my life, and now my other purpose is to inspire. I want to inspire because I believe inspiring helps break the mold that people make in the, about themselves. I want to empower people to understand that there is this incredible power in us. And that is based on this journey of removing layers and layers of these limiting beliefs and, and assumptions we make on how we perceive ourselves in the world. It ain't so. Finally, number 10, reframing discrimination with Dr. Frank Douglas. I'm a bit surprised to see this recent episode competing so well with others that had more time, but I'm also glad to see that people are coming to the show for information about key issues in society. Well, it might be interesting to uh, your uh, audience. Uh, I actually was born in Guyana, South America, came to America on a Fulbright scholarship and uh, stayed on. I've been very fortunate in that I have a PhD and an MD and spent a lot of my life actually in the pharmaceutical industry. And when I uh, retired from the pharmaceutical industry, I returned to academia. 
but where I'm really spending a lot of my effort is in the area of discrimination. In fact, I just uh, published about uh, at the end of February, I published uh, a new book, which is entitled Addressing Systemic Discrimination by Reframing the Problem. And uh, the, the title actually has a lot to do with my own experiences, both in industry and in academia. Uh, about three years, no, sorry, not three years, but the time is going. Uh, uh, about four, five, four to five years ago, I wrote my memoirs. And as I was writing them, something struck me. And that was that often when I faced uh, problems, uh, I tended to reframe. And uh, I thought that as a matter of fact, this might be very useful for uh, individuals experiencing discrimination, be it gender, be it ethnic, religious, uh, sexual orientation, uh, that uh, this methodology might be very helpful. When I completed my PhD at Cornell, I was actually hired by Xerox. And for three months, I could not get a good project. I would discuss with my, uh, my boss. And one day, a white young man joined the group. And within a week, he was placed on the hottest project we had in research and development at Xerox at the time. So I went to my boss and asked again. And I was stunned to see the recognition just sort of come over his face as he said to me, you know, you're right. Bob has only been here a week, and I've put him on the Ardry project, which was the hottest project we had. I was livid. <laughs> I jumped out of my chair, ran to the office of the senior vice president to give him another ex example of how I was being discriminated against. Now, about two or three years later, I thought about that, and two things occurred to me. The first was that Dr. Travis, the senior vice president, had hired three young black PhDs that summer to add to the one black PhD that the Xerox had at that time. So it probably was more important to him that Frank Douglas did well than it was to Frank Douglas because he was on the line. The second thing that occurred to me is that my desired outcome was really to get a good project and not for the senior vice president to go and have tough words with uh, my boss. So had I reframed in a sense, had I said, you know, Dr. Tribus, could you help my boss find me a good project? That was within his sphere of influence and that's what I wanted and I might have retired from Xerox. Uh, instead, I ended up going to medical school. That's how I ended up having an MD after that incident. <laughs> you know, and uh, when I was in medical school, and, uh, learning uh, different things, as you know, particularly in psychiatry, you begin to see things differently. And that was when I thought about that incident and thought, you know, I actually asked the wrong question. Is there yes. like a best practice as far as like where it could help or who it could help? Uh, I think, uh, uh, I think it can help several individuals. And this is why I talk about discrimination rather than talking about racism, because I think it can help in any situation, whether 
whether the person is aware or not, there is bias or unconscious uh, uh, bias. And where there is a situation where one person uh, is in a higher position or more powerful than another, uh, I think that's those are the situations where it can help. And in fact, in the, in the book, what I talk about are the two issues, namely equity and inclusion. And uh, in my view, equity is really the responsibility of the senior managers to set the ground rules, how, how we play to, together, fairness, et cetera, on an organization-wide basis. And then inclusion occurs at the work unit where the behaviors of inclusion, of belonging, listening to each other, valuing each other's experiences, that those are practiced on a daily basis. And when an organization uh, is such that equity and inclusion reinforce each other, then you produce very motivated and engaged em employees. So rather than talking about D, E, and I, I actually talk about equity, inclusion, and individual engagement, E-I-I-E. It's sort of a double E-I. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and really in organizations, that's what we want. To, what is interesting about this, as a matter of fact, is Gallup, over 30 years, they have been looking at issues like this, and they have uh, demonstrated that Companies that are in the fourth quartile with respect to employee engagement have much better productivity, 24% greater productivity and profitability, uh, do much better with respect to uh, retention. And uh, in a real sense, motivated employees drive productivity. So let's recognize that individuals bring the diversity what is you know the way their culture their ethnicity their gender the schools they went to and the way they think individuals bring that diversity so if we focus on individuals and focus on making sure that those individuals are motivated and the key to that is equity and inclusion we are probably going to do much better in dealing with issues around discrimination. And that's the whole top 10 most downloaded. What do you think? Did your favorite make the list? Did you find a new episode to listen to that you previously skipped? Can you believe it's been two years already? I know for me, time sure does fly working on the show, and I couldn't have done it without the amazing listeners that make up this audience. I know I've said it before, but I am truly so grateful for each and every one of you who tunes in, laughs, learns, and embraces the dumbness. Unfortunately, I didn't get to travel much and meet more fans in the places that they're from over this last year, but I'm hoping to make that a higher priority in these next 12 months. But now that the compilation is out of the way, it's all about celebrating with you listeners. I asked you all to send in your questions and messages, and we've got a few great ones to share for the diehards who've stuck around this long. Our first message comes from Brandy. Thank you, Brandy. She says, Congratulations on two years. Thank you. What has been the most challenging part of running the podcast? That's a great question. 
I think the most challenging part lately has been finding the balance between staying true to the dumb and fun style I first imagined, while also improving the quality and reach of the show. And, of course, the technical glitches along the way have also been quite challenging, but I feel I've learned and grown so much over the last year. Here's a question from Adam. Thank you, Adam. He asks, what is your favorite dumb fact that you've learned on the show? You know, I get asked what kind of things I learn when talking to people about the show, but I think my go-to might always be, did you know we measure and sell bees by the quarter cup? Ever since the beekeeping episode, I have been unable to get that out of my brain. The other, slightly more grim fact I frequently recall is that we only have 4,000 Mondays to live. Jody Wellman really changed some of the ways that I personally set long-term goals when she hit me with all of the bombshells in that episode. I still haven't performed a live show all my own, but I have done multiple shows that were live or on-air with other creators and networks, so we'll half count it. Jake asks, how are the side projects going? Thank you for asking, Jake. I am always either too low on time or sleep, or both. I have so many things that I'm passionate about seeing through, and unfortunately most of them are very time-consuming. It's not that I couldn't have seen this coming. I mean, the audio drama alone requires a written script, custom music, voice actors, soundscaping, marketing input, and all kinds of other things that I have no practice with. But once I feel truly passionate about something, I'm unlikely to let it go without a very hard fight. So, short answer to your question, it's going slower than anticipated. But believe me when I say there will be an announcement any time one of these major projects goes live. Our next question is from Mark. Mark asks, how long before this is your only job? That's a tricky one to answer, Mark. While I would absolutely love for this podcast to be the only thing I need to do for a living, I also don't know that I would ever give up some of the other things I do, like writing and consulting. Also, I think the day where this show could be my only income is quite a ways off. Podcasting doesn't really pay like a lot of the public thinks it does. For instance, if you hear an ad play before, during, or after this show, know that I am only being paid between three cents and seven cents for it. Which means, on the low end, I would need 250 listeners to each listen to at least one ad in order to make the federal minimum wage of $7.25 for a single hour. Feel free to do the math on what it would take to make up your paycheck, but suffice to say, it's a whole lot. As far as this episode goes, we've basically reached the end. It was very interesting to put together, and it's something I'd be willing to do more of if you all enjoyed it. Be sure to leave a comment to let me know. 
Also, let me know what's on your mind by emailing dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or by sending a message to me on any of the other social media pages like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. I'd also love to have more listeners on the show if you've got a job or a hobby or a lifestyle that you love to talk about. Anyway, as we look ahead to year three, you can expect even more dumb questions, laughter, tears, and maybe a few surprises along the way. So stay tuned, and stay dumb.